Thank you very much. Good to see you all. I want to assure you that we're not commuting daily uh, between uh, here at, at, and uh, well, we did have fun in a snow squall between Sarnia and uh, London on uh, whatever day that was. We came up Sunday afternoon, I guess. Of the scripture that was read to us, I'm uh, focusing as a text on verse 17 of Genesis 9, or 16, Genesis 9:16, which reads, "Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth." Now you remember that toward the end of his ministry, Jesus told various stories and parables about the end of his time on earth and the time, uh, and he talked about his return. And in one of those stories, he says, well, it's, it's like in the days of Noah, just as in the days of Noah. And he said, one will be taken, another will be left. And they told different stories along that line. One will be taken, another left. You know, I'd, I'd often, always believed, often thought, oh, well, that means the righteous are taken away and the evil are left on the earth. And, and then I started looking at the text, and I thought, well, Jesus gives very, two very clear clues that that's not what he means. Because he says, as in the days of Noah, some will be taken away and some will left. Well, who were taken away in the flood? It, it's clear that it was the evil who were taken away, were swept away. In fact, in the Matthew version of that, it says taken away. So that's one clue. God is not interested in taking the righteous out of the earth, but taking the evil out of the earth, right? And then the other clue, of course, is found uh, in the account where, uh, where he says, uh, the disciples ask in the Luke version, where? Where, Lord? And Jesus says, where there is a dead body, there the vultures will gather. Now, that is, the ones taken away go to the place of death and destruction. So the question is, why have I so long misunderstood Jesus' words here? And I think the answer is, that I've not paid enough attention to the days of Noah, and especially to God's covenant with the earth that is emphasized in Genesis 9. So let's revisit the days of Noah, the Noah story, focusing not on the ark and the flood, but on the covenant that God makes with Noah after the flood. It's a fascinating passage when we, uh, when we dig into it, and again, Notice especially verse 16, whenever the rainbow appears in the cloud, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. Now in my Bible here, which happens to be the uh, TNIV, the, the, chapter 9 is headed, given this headed, heading, God's covenant with Noah. And I've written in after that, and the earth, because that's what the passage says. God is a covenant-making God. He takes the initiative first to create the world, then to restore it after the fall. God fulfills his plan of salvation through, as we know, a series of covenants. And so we think about the different covenants in, in Scripture, and especially the new covenant in the blood of Jesus Christ. Today we look at the first of these covenants, the first covenant, the covenant with Noah after the flood. And I, raised three very simple questions. One is, what was the meaning of the Genesis 9 covenant in Noah's day? Secondly, is this covenant still in effect today? And third, if it is, so what? 
What does it teach us? So I want to briefly visit those three questions. What, first of all, what was the meaning of the Genesis 9 covenant in Noah's day? Three things stand out as we examine this covenant, I think, that God makes in Genesis 9. First of all, it's a three-way covenant, that's clear. A covenant not only between God and Noah's family, but with every living creature on earth, verse 10. It's very interesting here to see who is included in the covenant. Note, for example, that the, what, what the passage says about all three, that is about God, about Noah, and the creatures. First of all, God. God it is, this is God's covenant. God takes the initiative. God is the creator. And here he is the one who establishes and sustains the covenant with Noah and with all the earth's creatures. Now notice in verse 9 it says, I now establish my covenant. So it is first of all God's covenant not ours. It is beyond our control or manipulation. Three times in this passage, God refers to the covenant as my covenant. So first of all, it's God's covenant. It's, with, it's the covenant that God makes. Secondly, it's a covenant with Noah and his family, right? This, that is humankind, all the human family that will descend from Noah. And so this is a covenant between God and humanity. The background here, of course, is the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2. God created Adam and Eve in an implied covenant relationship with himself. He placed them in a garden, and they were to care for the garden, the first command that was given to them, care for the garden. Genesis 9 now, after the judgment, after the flood, and so on, Genesis 9 is a new beginning. Following the judgment of the flood, in a sense, the plan of salvation begins here, not with the call of Abraham, which comes later. So the Genesis 9 covenant is a covenant between God and the human race. It is important in establishing the relationship between God and all human beings. God is the sovereign creator and sustainer, Humans are his creation and his stewards on earth. So it is between God, Noah and his family, that is all humankind, and third, with all earth's creatures. It's interesting how emphatic this chapter is at this point. This is a covenant with God and with Noah's family and with all earth's creatures, not just humans. One of the most surprising features in this passage is how comprehensive this chapter is when it, uh, and, and particularly this emphasis on the creatures. Notice, for example, verse 9, every living creature that was with you, also verse 9, every living creature on earth, verse 12, every kind, or rather every living creature uh, with you, verse 15, all the living creatures of every kind, Verse 16, all living creatures of every kind on the earth. Verse 17, all life on the earth. You see the expanding set of concentric circles or expanding of the circle. This is interesting because it's so emphatic. Why stress every living creature on earth? It reminds us of what God said to Noah when the ark was built. Take, quote, every living creature with you into the ark. In fact, it reminds us of the variety of creatures that God made in the beginning and the profusion as recorded in Genesis 1. So why this emphasis on every living creature? Partly, of course, it's a matter of human sustenance. So we're in the middle of ecology here. 
but it reminds us of God's care and God's concern for all the creatures that he has made. It's not just about human sustenance. In fact, it teaches us something rather amazing. God himself, God himself has a covenant with every creature, with every species he has made. This is, in fact, a covenant with the earth. Note verse 13 again, the covenant between me and the earth. So this is a three-way covenant, not a two-way covenant between God and humanity only. It is a covenant between God, humanity, and all the earth. So the first thing we notice is that it's a three-way covenant. There's a second interesting thing here when we look at this covenant, and that is it is a covenant of preservation. It's a covenant of preservation. This covenant is God's promise never again to destroy the earth by flood. As we read in Genesis 8:22, as long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. Three times in this passage, God says, never again. This is God's promise to us, to himself, and to the earth. God promises to preserve the earth, working out his plan of salvation through the subsequent covenants that he will make, culminating, of course, in the new covenant in the blood of Jesus Christ. In this sense, it's not only a covenant of preparation, it's a covenant of, or rather, preservation. It's also a covenant of preparation. It prepares the way for God's plan of salvation and new creation through Jesus Christ. So it's all interconnected in that sense. Thirdly, this is an everlasting, ongoing covenant. It's a three-way covenant. It's a covenant of preservation. And it's an everlasting, ongoing covenant. Actually, this was something that was a surprise to me when I started digging into this passage. How long does this covenant endure? Just until Abraham? Just until Jesus comes? That is, in the incarnation? This passage here is clear. A covenant for all generations to come in verse 12. Of course, when we hear generations, we think, oh, yeah, the Bible talks a lot about generations. It also describes it as an everlasting covenant, the same phrase used of God's later covenants. In other words, the Bible uses the same language in describing the Genesis 9 covenant as it does in referring to later covenants. This is an unending covenant. And so God says, never again. So I say this, this was something of a surprise to me as I was studying this. I had always assumed, in some sense, the covenant with the, uh, with the earth must be temporary until the second coming of Jesus Christ, perhaps. But Genesis 9, 16 refers to God's covenant with the earth as an everlasting covenant. In fact, the Greek Old Testament of the word eternal is the same that the New Testament, the same Greek word that the New Testament uses when it talks about eternal life. So, does God have an eternal covenant with the earth and all its creatures? Perhaps so, at least in the sense that the gospel promises a new heaven and a new earth. So, in light of that, I read with some interest what John Wesley writes in his sermon, The General Deliverance. And this is what, what Wesley wrote. He says, something better remains after death for these poor creatures, which likewise shall one day be delivered from this bondage of corruption, and shall then receive an ample amends for all their present sufferings. In view of God's care and ultimate intent for creation, we ourselves, Wesley said, should imitate him whose mercy is over all his works. Reflecting on God's merciful intent of ultimate restoration should, Wesley says, soften our hearts 
toward the meaner creatures, knowing that the Lord careth for them. Wesley argues, it may, be, it may enlarge our hearts toward those poor creatures to reflect that as vile as they appear in our eyes, not one of them is forgotten in the sight of our Father which is in heaven. So as we look at this, then, this, this, this covenant that God has made, we see in Genesis 9 that God acts to preserve the earth in contrast to his actions in the flood so that he can fulfill his larger purposes. This is consistent with what we see throughout the Bible, God's concern for people and the land, the environment in which people live, the earth which God has given us to inhabit and care for. And so we see in scripture that God's plan is to save people with their environment, not out of their environment. Reference Romans 8. That brings us to the second major question, and that is, is the Genesis 9 covenant still in effect today? Well, it looks like we've answered that one. Or was it nullified or canceled by God's later action? From what has already been said, the answer to this question is obvious, isn't it? The answer is yes, this Genesis 9 covenant is still in effect today. So covenant responsibility is still, an opportunity is still in effect today. We know this covenant continues for three important reasons. I'm doing a course this week on Trinity, so all my points are in threes here. So, uh, but we know this, this covenant continues for three important reasons. First of all, this was a comprehensive, everlasting covenant made with Noah and his descendants after him for all generations to come, as we have seen. God's repeated declaration, never again, and the reference to an everlasting or eternal covenant in verse 16 underscores the fact that the covenant at this time in the days of Noah is still in effect today. Secondly, the rainbow continues as God's sign of this permanent covenant, just as God promised. God says, whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. When God sees the rainbow, God remembers his covenant. Do we? Do we remember the covenant that God made with all earth's creatures and with the earth when we see the rainbow? God does. So there's a significance to the rainbow now, not just in relation to the flood, but in relation to God's covenant with all creatures on earth. The rainbow is God's cupped hand over the earth, showing his care and concern for the earth and all its creatures. So we know it from that standpoint, but we also know it for another reason. The interrelationship between God, humanity, and the earth, in fact, continues today. It, scientists tell us that, right? The interrelationship, that is believing scientists, right, I should say, uh, the interrelationship between God, humanity, and the earth, in fact, continues today. God continues to be creator and sustainer, and human beings and the earth continue to be under his care. Humans continue to be dependent both on God and on the earth, which is God's gift to us. Yes, the everlasting covenant between God, humanity, and all earth's creatures is still in effect today. If so, what does that mean to us right now? In what ways is it a matter of our discipleship, of our spirituality, our spiritual growth? So that brings us to the final question this morning. What does the Genesis 9 covenant teach us today. 
Well, how about three things? Uh, what the Genesis 9 covenant teaches us today. First of all, the Genesis 9 covenant teaches the true relationship between God, humans, and the earth. This is where Christians have a deeper insight than, uh, say, secular biologists or, or ecologists, because we recognize that there is a true relationship not only between humans and the, the physical world, but also with God himself. Many Christians, I think, de forget our dependence on the earth and the place of the earth in God's plan. Genesis 9 teaches us the nature of the created order, which is one of interrelationship between God, humans, and the earth. Perhaps the most important, perhaps this is the most important point regarding the permanence of the covenant with Noah. It describes, the covenant with Noah describes the actual, factual, verifi empirical, verifiable, a continuing relationship between humans and the earth, and we believe by the, on the revelation of God, most importantly, our relationship with God. And so it continues to be true that God is the creator and we uh, on earth depend on him. It continues to be true that humans are dependent both on God and on the earth. We depend on the earth for our food, for oxygen, for our very life physically speaking. The earth and all the creatures are under God's human control. That continues to be the case, or at least human influence. The Genesis 9 covenant reminds us that God's plan concerns not only human beings, but all the earth. And in fact, the, this covenant, this first covenant, is foundational for the new heavens and the new earth, which scripture promises. Notice especially that this is a covenant relationship. This is a covenant relationship based on God's action and initiative. Also we see, and secondly, that the Genesis 9 covenant reminds us of God's concern for all living creatures. Earth's life forms exist for God, not just for human use or enjoyment. The creatures have their own right to exist and flourish because they were created by God. They are God's and not ours. Repeatedly in scripture, we see God's concern for the creatures of the earth. Of course, this is a major theme in Psalms. It's also a major theme in the last chapters of the book of Job, where God gets Job's attention. The Bible speaks of the healing of the nations and the healing of the land. Christians know that earth species must be protected for four, four reasons then. First, because God created them. Secondly, because God delights in them. Third, because we are dependent on them. Fourth, because they are part of God's larger plan. Then, which leads us to the, to the third point, the Genesis 9 covenant gives us a biblical and theological basis for creation care. It's important for our discipleship and spiritual growth. This says something about our Bible study. It says something about our prayer, certainly about our witness, certainly about our lifestyle living lightly and in harmony with the earth. Christians are countercultural at this point. We have a different basis for looking at environmental issues because we look at it from the standpoint of God as creator, not just human well-being, and God's everlasting covenant with the earth. Genesis 9 is, in fact, part of the larger biblical story of creation, fall, new creation through Jesus Christ. And it brings us and to deeper appreciation for the meaning of Jesus Christ's incarnation, his life, death, resurrection, physical resurrection, and new creation, and the hope of our own resurrection. We harm the environment and the creatures through, through air and water pollution, overconsumption, overdevelopment, many other ways. 
and simply by failing to pay attention. So there are many things that we can learn by looking at scripture and what it says about the nature of God, God's world, and the earth. Once we understand God's covenant with the earth based on the biblical account of creation, many other things in scripture become clear, seem to fall in place. For example, we notice how often the Bible speaks of the earth, the land, and the varieties of creatures God has made. And we come to see that these references in scripture are more than illustrations of God's love and, con and concern. They are more than parables giving us spiritual lessons. Rather, the biblical references to the land and the creatures tell us something basic about God and about God's plan and the promise of new heaven and new earth, the liberation of all creation that is spoken of in Romans 8. And of course, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ and the promise of our own bodily resurrection, not in disembodied heaven. I love Charles Wesley's hymn, Love Divine, All Loves Excelling. It needs a fifth verse, a final stanza. Finish then thy new creation. He, in that verse, he says, till in heaven we take our place, the final verse is still to be written. Till on earth we take our place in the new heaven and the new earth and enjoy the fullness and continuing development of God's creation forever. This is our Father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied and earth and heaven be one. Amen.